1: Welcome in to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday, October 28th. The thanks as always for tuning in. Hope you all had a fantastic weekend. On today's show I will be chatting with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Yes, Kyla will join me in the next window for our usual Monday morning chat. Topics today include the BC Supreme Court ruling against the Attorney General David Eby's limit on the number of expert reports allowed in auto insurance lawsuits. We'll also be chatting about the lawsuit that was announced on Friday in Vancouver by 15 youths from across Canada who claim Ottawa has violated their fundamental rights by contributing to the warming planet, so stick around for that conversation. In the back half of today's show, I'll be starting things off with a chat with the president of the BC School Trustees Association, who met over the weekend. Uh, they passed a motion urging the federal government to do more to combat youth vaping, among other topics. So I'll be joined by BC STA President Stephanie Higginson in a little while. And then to end off today's show, I'll be speaking with Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keene to break down a one-in-one weekend for the Blazers, who are in Victoria you for back-to-back games but to begin today's program with one look back at the federal election it's been one week now since monday's vote and i've had the chance to speak with area mps including kathy mccloud and dan albus we've also had other newly minted or re-elected members of parliament on the program here on radio nl but i've not yet had the chance to speak with the conservative mp for north okanagan shoe swap mel arnold so i've invited him here today and he joins me on the line now mel thanks so much for joining me
2: Good morning. Thanks for having
1: me on. Now, so you were reelected here to uh, a second term last week, getting almost 49% of the vote. Uh, first of all, I guess, just how does winning by such a significant margin make you feel about, you know, how your constituents view the job that you have done to date?
2: Well it's really gratifying to know that the the hard work that I've gone through over the last 4 years um understanding or trying you know learning to understand what's important to the writing has resonated and that the voters have put their trust in me again and I very you know very much want to thank the voters for that trust.
1: Uh, so now, what will be sort of your major goals once Parliament resumes? I mean, I've spoken with some of your Conservative colleagues here who seem to be focusing on the forestry file, and, and understandably so, given the, the difficult times that industry is going through. I mean, do you have, do you have similar priorities when you head back to Ottawa right now?
2: Well, the, the you know, the big priority, and you can't really pin it down to one thing, and that's representing the people of the North Okanagan Shushwap. But uh, the one thing that I did work a lot on over the past four years was the aquatic invasive species and the potential impact on the Shulop and Okanagan lake systems if those uh, zebra and quagga mussels were ever introduced here or other aquatic invasive species. It could seriously impact our the ecology of the area perhaps larger than any other ecological disaster that we can. Even imagine. So I've put a lot of work into that over the past four years. I'm going to continue to advocate for for more funding to prevent the spread of those aquatic invasive species into the area.
1: Uh, so when you say you want to continue to advocate, I guess what what does that necessarily entail in order to achieve you know the goals that you're looking for on that file? I mean, uh, you know, there clearly needs to be cooperation among parties now moving forward with the minority government in order to achieve a path forward on. on on any issue at this point so when you're looking at invasive species I mean it seems like something especially when we're talking about the environment so much recently that you know it's just something that obviously people should want to protect Um, you know how do you make your case to make sure that you know you you are able to have a voice when it comes to this file
2: well I've gradually built this case over four years I'm going to continue to build there's about uh, there's over seven million dollars per year goes into uh, invasive species aquatic invasive species across Canada but currently, over 80% of that is spent on just two species in the Great Lakes. Uh, we need to see the a, a bigger portion of that um, spending coming to the uh, the North Okanagan, Shuswap, and BC to protect our waterways here. It's such an important aspect. We know that it would be between 40 and 50 million dollars per year just for maintenance costs if uh, those species were ever to get here. Currently, there is no treatment for them. Uh, the only treatment would be to drain the entire water systems, and that's simply not possible. So we need to prevent it any way we possibly can. Uh,
1: can you maybe just run me through when you're talking about prevention of uh, you know these coming in, these species coming into the the lakes here? Um, just what what exactly does that, that does that look like?
2: Sure. There's actually three ministries involved in this, and that's why it's a fairly complicated file that I've dealt with as Deputy Shadow Minister for Fisheries. The fisheries department because it deals with um, their, the fisheries ministry because it deals with uh, our, all of our fish species, our salmon species, especially in the shoe and now they're coming back into the Okanagan. It deals with the Canadian Border Service Agency which is public uh, safety ministry um, to make sure that we have proper checkpoints at our borders for, for boats and watercraft that are coming into the the area. And it also includes the Ministry of Environment because it would be a huge environmental impact if they were here. So it's working across those three ministries, uh, working with our shadow ministers on our side and in in the opposition, but also working with the the ministers in those three uh, ministries to make sure that they understand the potential threat, the potential cost in the long run would be far greater than the prevention part. Perfect.
1: Uh, Mel, I'll probably get you out of here on this one as well. Uh, you said that during your campaign, you know, it was kind of focused on listening to people and, and hearing what was important to them. Um, you know, you, you've talked on one of your your big uh, goals here over the last four years and moving forward will be to work on invasive species. But when it comes to what you heard from from your constituents, what was your, your biggest takeaway or, or something else that you were able to take away from that aspect of your campaign? What are people telling you that, uh, you know, are priorities for them that, that you can take to Ottawa with you?
2: Well, it was affordability, and whether that was housing affordability or just um, the general cost of living, we know taxes have gone up um, for the average family under the the previous Liberal government. We've got to make sure that the out-of-control spending gets brought back under control so that it's not going to cost future taxpayers uh, exorbitant amounts to service that debt. We know that debt service right now is over $24 billion dollars, per year, and that's going to increase with the, the uh, direction the, the Liberals and the NDP have set, if that's the, the type of coalition that may form.
1: Good stuff, Mel. Well, thanks so much for coming on with me today. I really appreciate you joining me, and, and congratulations one more time on the, on the re-election, and uh, I look forward to doing this again with you in the future. Thanks so much.
2: You bet. Thank you for having me, and anytime. Thanks. No.
1: Great. That was Mel Arnold, Conservative MP for North Okanagan Swap. Well, in terms of our MP coverage, I think we've now given everyone who was elected or re-elected here in the immediate Kamloops area a good chance to speak and reflect on last week's vote. And, and now we can sort of look ahead to November 20th when the new cabinet will be sworn in and see what kind of impact that might have for us here. So we'll look ahead to that date. Coming up after the break, the B.C. Supreme Court has ruled against the Attorney General's cap on the number of expert reports allowed in auto insurance lawsuits. I'll be chatting about that and more with acumen laws kyla lee after this
0: your opinion call or text 250 374 find us on facebook or on twitter at radio nl news this is jeff andreas on radio nl.com
1: Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday following the final weekend here in October. It's time for the usual Monday morning chat with Agumon Law's Kyla Lee. Kyla, thanks so much as always for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: How was your weekend?
3: Oh, it was good. Got lots of work done.
1: (laughs) Perfect. That's the most important thing, I guess. Uh, I got a lot of relaxing done. Not much work done. So we're polar opposites in that aspect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, so uh, to kick things off, uh, I mean, we need to touch on Thursday's B.C. Supreme Court ruling that the uh, the government limits on expert reports was unconstitutional because it violates the exclusive powers of a court's control over its processes. So for those unaware, a cap that was set by Attorney General David Eby on the number of expert reports allowed in auto insurance lawsuits was unconstitutional, um, and it was felt that the cap violated those exclusive powers of courts to control its own process. Um so the decision overturns cabinet orders made early this year, uh, which limits both ICBC and plaintiff lawyers in auto injury cases to only one expert and one report each for the fast track claims valued at less than a hundred grand and up to three experts and three reports for all other claims. So um this has to be good news, I guess, for you as a defense lawyer here, Kyla. I mean one expert really limits what you can present. So I guess what are your initial thoughts on this on this ruling here that was made on Thursday.
3: I think this is a great uh, ruling because it didn't make a lot of sense to me when they put the caps in um, that you could only have a a certain number of experts. If you have different types of injuries to different parts of your body, naturally you're going to need different experts to talk about how those injuries affect you. You're going to need experts to talk about your financial loss as a result of each of the injuries. It didn't make sense when you actually think about how people can become injured in car accidents to just arbitrarily set a limit glad that the court
1: ruled in the way that it did. Um, it may, there might be some perception out there too that this is more maybe more beneficial for the defense. Uh, do, do you see it that way? or do you see this as you know something that plaintiffs can use as well, given the fact that uh, or sorry that uh, you know ICBC lawyers potentially or crown lawyers, if you will, could use as well, um you know, because they can now also present more than one expert. I mean, it's kind of a give and take here, I would think.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, d- don't really understand the process. Half the time, the experts in court, the multiple experts are being called by ICBC, not by the plaintiff. And they're as much a part of the problem that, uh, that the attorney general perceives in, in calling multiple experts as the plaintiff bar is in calling them. Um, nobody wants to spend their client's money uh, hiring an expert, paying all of those fees for the expert to produce a report, paying the expert potentially to come and attend court and testify if it's not necessary or in the interests of of the client. There's no point in wasting the client's money and ultimately taking that money out of what the client might recover at the end of the day uh, in a trial. And so uh, there was never a problem by and large with plaintiffs bringing multiple experts. In fact, ICBC was as much a culprit for this as anybody else. So,
1: yeah, you touched on it a little bit there, but do you ever see people kind of abusing the fact that there would be no cap and bringing in maybe more experts than warranted? Does that ever happen for you?
3: Oh, I've never seen it, but I've heard cases where it has happened and, of course, as with anything, there are going to be people who take advantage of of you know the absence of caps on something or take advantage of loose rules um, and abuse the system. You can't weed that out by imposing an arbitrary rule because those people are then going to bring applications trying to get the court to exercise their discretion to go around the rule. They're going to waste resources in other ways. M- you know, people who are behaving badly in the system are always going to behave badly in the system, regardless of what rules you put in place. And those people are a very, very small minority. And numbers released yesterday in an article in the province actually confirm this. If you look at the $1.9 billion that was paid to plaintiff personal injury law firms for settlements and for court costs, of that gigantic number, um, all uh, the court costs, disbursements, and expert reports Together, cumulatively, only came to 184 million dollars. So that's a very small amount of the money that ICDC is actually paying out on an annual basis to settle claims.
1: Um, I also wanted to ask too. I mean, are you expecting this to be appealed as it is right now, or, or do you think it's more likely that uh, there could be some new legislation crafted and then re-presented? Because I, I don't, I would expect that the Attorney General's Office is probably, uh, you know, not done with this issue just yet
3: oh, they're definitely not done with this issue. I expect that if an appeal isn't filed, and it, it's a pretty solid judgment, so it's unlikely that an appeal would be successful, but if an appeal isn't filed, um, then w- what will likely happen is that the government will you know, hunker down and try and figure out a way to craft other legislation to address what they perceive to be the problem. Um, and that's what happens in response to lots of rulings related to unconstitutional laws. It's the government just trying to find a more constitutional way to get the
1: outcome that they want um uh, when limiting the number of experts allowed in cases i would think that part of the goal behind that would be to potentially speed up the court process a little bit um you know if that has been the case at all with these limits in place or or you know do, do you see the court process maybe slowing down with more experts being allowed to be called in
3: As soon as you limit what people can do in their litigation, you ultimately slow down litigation. When you have the ability to have more experts, you get a better evidentiary foundation for the court to explain the issues and so it's less time spent you know, hearing a plaintiff necessarily testify about how bad their foot injury is because you can have the objective evidence from somebody who's an expert in foot injuries um, and that, that evidence can often be heard faster they're a more coherent witness, they're used to testifying uh, or they can produce a report and dispense of the need for testimony at all um, by agreement of the parties. So you have you have mechanisms where there are more experts sometimes to speed up the process and of course anytime someone somebody's bringing a challenge to these laws, it grinds everything to a halt. Because if one person is challenging the law and says, I don't think this is constitutional, everybody who's affected by it says, well, wait a minute, I want to put my case on hold. I want to hear what the court has to say about that before I move forward, because I don't want to be prejudiced by this rule that might be unconstitutional. So so challenges actually slow down the progress of all cases in court, um, which is why the government needs to Think about those very seriously when they're crafting laws or making regulations.
1: Interesting. Uh, Anything else you want to add on that file, Kyla, before we move along?
3: No, I think that
1: covers it. Perfect. I'm here with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. So I did also want to talk about the lawsuit that was filed by these uh, 15 youths in Vancouver um, on Friday. Swedish teen and climate change activist Greta Thunberg was in Vancouver to uh, help announce this lawsuit. Uh, The claim is that Ottawa has violated their fundamental rights by contributing to the warming planet, and they're demanding a national plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's one of other similar lawsuits that have been filed across the world uh, in an effort to hold governments accountable for consequences of climate change. Similar legal action was taken in places such as uh, India, the Netherlands, and the United States, Kyla. So first I want to ask, kind of how legitimate do you believe this case even is? I mean, it doesn't sound like a case that we'll be able to get very far. Like, it feels almost like a ploy to raise awareness more than actually address the issues. Just uh, kind of how do you view the legitimacy of a case like this?
3: I mean, the the cases like this have a huge hurdle to overcome, and that's what they're completely unprecedented. So the, the plaintiffs in these cases, the youth, can't point to any other case law that's been decided to say that the interpretation of the charter and the constitutional obligations that the government have include protecting the climate. The closest case that was filed to something like this in uh, British Columbia involved somebody who was suing for protection of Sasquatch um, on the basis that uh, that climate change and, and uh, you know, environmental impacts uh, were eliminating the Sasquatch habitat, um, and that was dismissed summarily. And there's a very strong risk that this case will also be dismissed summarily, Although, there is a good point. It is a novel exercise of a person's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And because it's widely accepted that climate change does impact our security of the person, and in particular for young people, their future security of the person, there's more of a foothold there than we've seen in other sort of um, media litigation uh, in these types of cases. Hmm.
1: Now, yeah, this group is claiming, you know, they've suffered specific individualized injuries due to climate change as part of the, the, the wording I was able to find, um, you know, the, the result from the high greenhouse gas emissions in the country. I mean, uh, that feels like it'll be a, a pretty difficult thing to prove, at least when it comes to any sort of specifics. Um, I mean, just just. Uh, Not a lot of time here left, Kylo, but just, I mean, when you're looking at sort of real general statements such as that and and talking about suffering specific injuries as a result of climate change, that doesn't feel like something that they'll be able to prove, even though they do have some pretty significant backing here, but uh, it doesn't really feel like something that's going to be able to be proven.
3: No, there's not a lot of evidence, uh, scientific or otherwise, out there to prove that people are suffering specific physical harms as a result of this. But there is also emotional distress, which is a form of harm. Um, And it's clear that a lot of our our nation's youth are very emotionally distressed by the absence of action in relation to climate change. So whether that's the specific harm that they're suffering, um, that might be something that the court actually has to work through
1: well, Kyla, that pretty much wraps up our time, but uh, thanks as always for joining me, and uh, I really appreciate you doing this and look forward to doing it again next week.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: That was Acumen Law's Kyla Kyla Lee. Um, Yeah, it's going to be an interesting case to follow. I mean, uh, I think the message is uh, worthy, but not necessarily sure that a lawsuit against the federal government on climate change is is going to breed any results. Uh, Coming up after the break, the B.C. School Trustees Association met over the weekend for its AGM and is looking to do more to reduce instances of youth vaping. I'll be chatting more with the president of the organization about that, so stick around.
0: (laughs) to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL six ten a.m. News Talk and RadioNL dot com.
1: Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, the twenty eighth. The British Columbia School Trustees Association met over the weekend and vaping was among the issues brought forward. The BCSTA has moved a motion urging both the Canadian Health Ministry and Ministry of Education to step up to the plate on the issue by making resources for youth on vape health implications and vape cessation widely available, revise current resources for smoking cessation to specifically include vaping in use, and to update language legislating vaping product ads to align with current tobacco legislation. I am joined now by the President. Of the BCSTA, Stephanie Higginson. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me on the show today.
3: Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you.
1: Yeah, you guys sounded like you had a pretty action-packed weekend here.
3: We did. Our provincial council meets twice a year designed for uh, school boards and boards of education to bring forward motions that they feel are emergent and need immediate action. And that's what we had this weekend, and that's where this motion came out of.
1: Perfect. So we'll get right into the specifics here. So uh, the issue of vaping was uh, referred to as a health crisis by some trustees. Um, So before we get into the specific legislation, I guess, uh, you know, how are you guys classifying this issue, and, and do you view it as that level of a crisis right now?
3: you know, from the provincial lens, I'm certainly hearing from various boards across the province that they are having, you know, a real issue dealing with this. And some boards certainly are characterizing this as a crisis. And, and the amount of time that's being focused on, on helping our students in the schools deal with the various situations around it is, uh, is a concern, a real concern for specifically some local boards. But it's also becoming a concern provincially when we hear about the number of boards that are dealing with it.
1: Um now there was a, a revision I believe made to this uh, sort of last minute on uh, Saturday the big change from what I was able to 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 see was that uh, it? Appears that the issue around advertising and promotion was sort of the big sticking point here. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what you guys were viewing as the big issue when it comes to the promotion of vaping products? Obviously, there's got to be the big issue concerning the fact that they're looking at uh, you know promoting these products to younger younger people and and getting those quote unquote lifelong customers, if you will. I guess just can you talk a little bit about the concerns that the trustees have when it comes to uh, the promotion of these products?
3: Well. You know, it's really tricky. I I am not an expert in legislation and it does feel uh, around this particular issue and it does feel like there's a bit of a bouncing ball of jurisdictional issues. You know, is it federal? Is it provincial? And so what trustees really want to focus on, if you look at the first two parts of that motion, they were focused on education, you know, uh, the health implications of and and vape cessation education and making um, resources specifically directed at youth for smoking and vape cessation. And then that third one, was put in there to address the fact that it's really, you know, we need these these resources on education for youth because there does seem to be a gap in legislation around the way that these um, these products are being advertised. And so people would like to sort of, you know, start with let's not advertise them in a way that is so appealing to youth so then we can... Not necessarily need all these things, but right now we do need these uh, resources on vape health implications and vape cessation, and we need them more widely available, partly because of the, the way that they are allowed to be promoted and advertised.
1: Uh, Stephanie, when did this really become a, a big conversation for the BCSCA? Because, like, I see that you know you wrote a letter to um, uh, Adrian Dix here in July. Um, you know, this issue has been kind of getting more recent attention when we started seeing the issues of you know, the lung disease in the United States, and now that's uh, being more uh, presented up here in Canada with some cases being uh, exposed as well. Just sort of, when did this conversation around vaping begin? Just to kind of get a sense of when you guys sort of started to see this as a significant issue.
3: I think locally, this issue probably started to bubble up about 12 to 18 months ago, and you know, if not even before that, but as as sort of starting to become a real concern, and then people sort of were monitoring what was happening locally to know if it was just an issue in their area or not, and then that's how. It started to move up to last year in our AGM, in our annual general meeting in April. It became a motion provincially uh, because enough people recognized in their conversations, board chairs from across the province, that this was a provincial issue. So they wanted the provincial organization, which is the BCSTA, to take it on as part of our advocacy. So it's been more of a focused advocacy for us in the last six months.
1: Uh, here with President of the BC School Trustees Association Stephanie Higginson. Um, so when you're when you're talking about that and the fact that this issue has kind of has been on your radar for a while, uh, just what what do you feel the role is? I guess of uh, you know this you guys as a School Trustees Association representing the school districts here across the province. Um, where do you feel like the the Uh, responsibility sort of starts because I know like I I have the the school board uh, chair here for for SD 73 on uh, every once in a while and you know we've talked about this issue as well and it seems like it has to start at that school level but you guys are really pushing more for a federal level here in in this uh, motion that you guys have passed here over the weekend just uh, I know we've seen guys like Todd Stone our MLA here in Kamloops has been pushing for more rules around vaping Um, you know it seems like there's being pressure put on at every level but where does it really start does it start at that school board level and then have that kind of trickle up effect if you will
3: well in, in reference to how we start dealing with it at the provincial level in our organization at BC School Trustees Association, it would start locally and trickle up to us. But in terms of, you know, I, I referred earlier to this sort of bouncing ball of legislation mm-hmm. around this, I think for school trustees, you know, what we need and what we're asking for is for these, um, you know, is for the, the vaping cessation and awareness programs and the education programs. And that would be done through our, our provincial Ministry of Education and Ministry of Health. Then when it comes to how do we limit the advertising around this, I... To be honest, I don't know if this is provincial or if this is federal. Yeah. I believe it is federal. To be honest, I believe it is federal, and we have done a, a lot of work federally around this as well. In the last election, we put together some advocacy kits for boards of education who wanted to, to approach their candidates, their federal candidates, because the Health, Health Canada has put together um, some legislation on this and is looking to introduce new regulatory measures. And the, the package is there, and we wanted to make sure that any candidate Candidate who came in federally was going to support that because we do see this affecting the students in the school and when it's affecting the students in the school it also means that you know time is being taken away to monitor this from educational programming we have our our you know administrators having to monitor the, the use of these products and our teachers having to monitor the use of these products and so it is affecting how we are able to deliver the you know the direct educational services
1: yeah, it's definitely a, a challenging thing here that, uh, you know, people have been talking about for quite some time. You guys a year and a half now into this, and, and uh, hopefully you're starting to make some progress. I guess, um, you, you know, what's, what's next for the BSTA on this issue? I mean, you put this motion forward. I assume that, uh, you know, that isn't the end of your work when it comes to the issue of vaping. So what, what's next to, to sort of make this progress through the system at this point?
3: Well, with this motion, this allows us to have more direct advocacy with the Ministry of Education locally and um, with Health Canada, and we will utilize this motion to direct some of our advocacy resources towards this issue. We have a seat at the Canadian School Board Association, and we'll uh, bring this forward to the Canadian School Board Association to look for some federal advocacy at that level as well, and utilize our membership in that organization to focus at the federal level. Uh, You know, of course, with the, the... current change in government and, uh, or the election just happening, you, you know, we need a new mm-hmm. government to be sworn in and all these types of things, but that doesn't stop us from continuing to make sure that, that this new, these new regulatory measures that were put together by Health Canada addressing some of these issues don't fall off the table in all of the changeover.
1: Um, I'm going to ask this out of curiosity and and, uh, I apologize if you don't really know off the top of your head, but uh, just kind of when you're when you're looking at this issue of vaping and, you know, we talked a little bit off the top that some people are viewing it as a crisis amongst youth here uh, in our in our province and and in our country. Um, Do you have any idea how it compares now to the issue of smoking? Has, Has vaping sort of surpassed smoking as a concern for for our youth and for those who are, you know, educating our youth?
3: To be honest, any information that I give you on this is just anecdotal and mm-hmm. my own observations. So I don't, have, I can't speak, you know, there's a lot, there there are studies being quoted about the amount of the increase in vaping, but from my own observation at the secondary school level, I do see it currently um, overtaking smoking as, as an issue. And I think that comes out of the fact that there's a lot of youth who don't quite understand that. These products contain nicotine, which is addictive. And, uh, and so, you know, when you have something that's flavored like bubblegum or mango or gummy bear or whatever the latest flavor of the month is, it's easy to forget that. And then when you realize that you're addicted to nicotine, it's almost too late, and that's one of the reasons why we're asking for resources on vape cessation to be made widely available, because that's one of the things that we are seeing is that students do realize suddenly that, they, uh, that these products do have nicotine, they're well into their use, and then they didn't, they didn't even know they were addicted to them, to, to nicotine.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what I figured the the answer might be. That's why I kind of wanted to uh, have uh, have that question with a bit of a precursor. But uh, yeah, anecdotally, I think that's kind of what we're we're all kind of hearing at this point is that it is starting to overtake that issue of smoking, and uh, that's obviously why we're seeing it more and more as a as a topic of conversation. Uh, anything else that you want to add, Stephanie? Before I let you go.
3: No, thanks very much for having us and bringing awareness to this important issue. We'll continue to work on behalf of school boards on it, both provincially and federally.
1: Yeah, and we'll continue to monitor the progress. So thanks so much for joining me, Stephanie. I really appreciate your time.
3: Great, thank you.
1: Awesome. That was Stephanie. You as well. That was Stephanie Higginson, President of the B.C. School Trustees Association. Yeah, we'll have to dig up some stats here and see just how big of an issue it is amongst the youth compared to smoking. I'm sure some studies are out there, but uh, didn't it look up any specifically before I came on? But uh, yeah, definitely curious to see what those stats would would break down to, because I think uh, more more people are vaping than they are smoking, especially when it comes to, to that youth demographic. Coming up after the break, the Blazers' winning streak came to an end Saturday night in Victoria. I'll be chatting with our own John Keane about this after the break.
0: The best in the world play here. What a save! NHL Action is live with the Radio NL Vancouver Canucks Game of the Week.
1: Tonight, Elias Pettersson and the Vancouver Canucks stare down Mike Matheson, Jonathan Huberto, and the Florida Panthers at Rogers Arena. Pre-game show on Radio NL at six o'clock. Rubber hits the ice with Brendan Batchelor and Corey Hirsch at seven.
0: Radio NL, six ten a.m. The home of your Vancouver Canucks. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andrea show here on Monday, October 28th. Just heard our promo there saying we are the home of the Vancouver Canucks, but of course we're also the home of your Kamloops Blazers. They went one and one over the weekend in Victoria, beating the Royals Friday night by a score of 2-1 before seeing the inverse of that score on Saturday. Our own John Keane was of course down in Victoria calling the games and uh, you know, there there is a bit here that I have from the end of Saturday night's contest to sort of wrap up that mini series from John.
4: Blazers fired 35 shots at this one. Just didn't quite get that clean cut look in the final minute 28 of this one. And the Royals hold on for a 2-1 win. So these two teams exchange 2-1 wins here this weekend. Blazers have their six game winning streak come to an end. And uh, the Royals very relieved. You can see to their face in this one as the Blazers uh, find a way to, wow, shots in the third, 17-3 Blazers.
1: I'm joined on the phone now by our NL Blazers play-by-play announcer, Mr. John Keane. John, thanks so much for joining me.
4: Hey, good morning, Jeff. Yeah, brand new week after uh, after the weekend and uh, upward and onward from here, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, before we get moving too much into uh, what took place uh, game-wise, I just uh, how was your time in Victoria?
4: Well, it's always a nice place to visit. Uh, it's always, uh, well, we had nice sunny weather and went for a nice walk on Saturday around the uh, the Inner Harbor there. And, you know, it would have been nice to leave with four points on that ferry ride home yesterday, but alas, it's two. And I'm not sure you know the history here lately anyways, Jeff, but the Blazers had lost nine consecutive regular season games in Victoria. They beat them in the playoffs last year there once, But uh, that streak goes back to uh, the 2016-17 season. So uh, at least with two points, uh, at least the win, I guess it's something to build on.
1: That seems like a a bit of a recent trend here, because I believe the same thing was being said, or similar numbers anyways, when it comes to, uh, I think it was Everett, right? Or they finally won there. Um, I guess just what's with the theme here of being able to sort of end these extended winning or uh, losing
4: streaks on the road? Good coaching and a uh, good hockey team, I think you're your best bets on that when you want to try to solve that, but yeah there's you know it's funny the the blazers have found a way to end a lot of streaks here recently, and you know you mentioned the Everett one, and yes it was uh, not only uh, in that building but overall, I think it was what it was a ten or eleven straight losses to everett so they they were able to do that the The best part about a, a new coaching staff is there's no Kind of carryover, right? No one knows that history. So it's not a factor. It's not something that's thought about. So, um, you know, it's always good to kind of uh, start fresh. And I think, uh, you know, there's a few more streaks here to go. It was also at uh, Vancouver. The Blazers hadn't beaten Vancouver in what nine straight meetings until they've already beaten him twice already. So they seemingly have found a way to kind of get rid of some of
1: these old demons. Now, hopefully that's a trend throughout the course of the season as, uh, as things progress. I mean, they're having a, a pretty great run. Like you had mentioned, a pretty good winning streak, which did come to an end on Saturday, but they were able to extend it uh, on Friday night with a 2-1 win. Uh, so maybe just uh, start by giving me a, a quick summary of, of Friday night's contest and how you see that one went down. A couple of real tight games here, but uh, you know, like a, like I mentioned on Friday, easy, able to squeeze out the 2-1 win. Uh, just, just what were your initial thoughts there on, on opening night there in Victoria?
4: Well, I, I think uh, it was a bit of a slow start for the, uh, for the road team. Uh, Victoria came out, they hadn't played for a while, and they had a lot of energy, grabbed the one nothing lead. Uh, Blazers were able to reset in the second period and, and really take over the game for long stretches, uh, scoring on uh, just uh, one of only two power plays that night to tie it in the second. Uh, they continued to push the pace in the third, and eventually you know, found that go-ahead goal with just over eight minutes to go, and, and after that, locked it down pretty good, uh, not really allowing you know, any opportunities or any great opportunities, you know, in the final minutes or so there. So and that was a good one, a good win to hold on to one and, and, uh, you know, really set them up for the weekend as far as an attempt to, to sweep it and, and, and head back home.
1: Yeah. Always nice to get the, the first of two when you're uh, looking at back-to-back games and l- feels like a little bit less pressure there on, on game number two. Uh, I'm joining the line here with Blazers play-by-play announcer, John Keene. So looking at uh, game two itself, it, was a bit of a tough start for the Blazers it seemed. Uh, You know, Trevor Thurston getting the five-minute major in a game as conduct early in the game for for a knee. Uh, You know, then Ryan Hughes gets a a tripping call about the halfway mark of the period. Uh, Taron Fizer scores for Victoria about two and a half minutes left, and then Stankoven takes another penalty shortly thereafter. I mean, uh, I wasn't in the building like you were, John, but it's hard to get things going when you're in the box for almost half of a period. Uh, Now, they were able to kill all of that off, but did uh, still trail 1-0 after the first, I guess, just, just, you know, what was it like watching that first period, and, and was it uh, a little bit difficult to watch seeing them get behind the eight ball uh, kind of early on in this one?
4: Yeah, you know the major yeah you mentioned didn't didn't really help. I mean, you're about two and a half in, and you're you're killing for for five minutes, and you know uh, eventually Victoria did cash in on their third power play of that period to close it out. You know, and that actually ended a streak of 20 straight penalty kills the Blazers had. And in that, 22 major penalties as well they killed off. So, you know, it was bound to uh, come to an end. The good thing is that this team has a really strong penalty kill because it has strong goaltending and, and strong structure. And uh, eventually, though, you can't play shorthanded for nine minutes and not expect any repercussions in one period. So, you know, it was a 2 nothing deficit after one. And, and uh, after that, again, same kind of script here. Blazers start slow. Uh, Saturday night as well, but then flip the script and and dominate the the game the rest of the way. I think the shots were 31-10 in the final two periods, Uh, but it took them all the way to the uh, 58 and a half minute mark of the game to get on the board when Zane Franklin broke the shutout bid with, what, a minute 28 to go and that at least gave them the opportunity to uh, try and tie things up And if you, that clip off the top that you played there, yeah, they just never really got that clean cut look, six on five in the final 90 seconds to, to tie it up there. And, you know, that would have been nice to force overtime, but, uh, I don't know. There was a lot of hard, I mean, obviously there was a concern about the start of the game, but the way that the Blazers took over that game and finished it and, and were the better team, you know, throughout, uh, really kind of softens up a little bit.
1: Yeah, and looking at those final two periods, and specifically talking about the third, uh, you know, you mentioned how how significant the the shot differential was there over the course of the final forty minutes. Um, but just if you if you watch the highlights, I mean, Zane Franklin's goal there with about 90 seconds left, it was a pretty cheap goal shooting it from basically the, the corner of the uh, offensive zone and somehow sneaking through. I mean, uh, was that sort of the, the tail of the tape when you just look at how that one went in and, and they were never really able to get a, a good look? You mentioned, you know, the, the the final dying minutes there. They they couldn't really get a, a grade A opportunity, if you will. I mean, was that the case throughout the the game? Is that just they were just having trouble, you know, maybe getting those scoring chances in the middle of the ice?
4: Yeah, middle of the ice, that's a good way to put it. I think uh, there wasn't a lot of great opportunity, great chances. You know, the shots, uh, you know, worth the 35 shots on goal there. But, you know, they, they were bound to get one if they just kept throwing pucks toward the net, and they do get that one late there. But, you know, and I think a lot of those, you know, looks that they didn't get Come from a lack of, of power play opportunities, and, and really, the Blazers did a ton of things to generate power play opportunities. But it was like it was like um, the referees, you know, had were under shoulder rehab surgery, and they weren't allowed to raise their arm above above their head there. And you know, Blazers did a lot of things, and they were hauled down, hooked up, punched in the face. A lot of these things that this team is going to need to get called for them to have success this season. They're a, a team that skates really well, they're going to be quicker than most teams, they're going to be more offensive than most teams, but they're not going to be as big or as strong as some teams, so they need the referees to say, hey, help us out here, I mean, we're doing all we can here to generate power play opportunities, using our speed, using our quickness, and overall, all weekend, they only had five power play advantages, three, or sorry, two on Friday, and three on Saturday, so you know that there was a lack of power play opportunities, and I know that the bench was, you know, a little upset here why they couldn't get opportunities. And um, you know that's something to watch this season. If if they're not going to call some of these hooks and trips and slashes, then you know the Blazers will be behind the eight ball because that's how they're going to generate power play chances this year. And they should most nights have more power play opportunities than their opposition.
1: Perfect. Well, uh, John, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Yeah, obviously a a one-in-one weekend, so uh, not a total disaster, but not a total success either. So a little bit of both ways. I appreciate you joining me, and uh, great job on the game as always. Thanks so much for uh, joining me. All
4: right, thank you, yeah. You betcha. Yeah, five straight on the road continues here next weekend in Everett and Portland. So hang in there, Blazer fans. We'll be back on Hawaii soon.
1: There you go, guys. So there's your little preview for uh, this upcoming weekend. That was, of course, Blazer's play-by-play announcer, John Keen. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me, and a bigger thank you to all of you for listening. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much for doing this. If you join me here for a short while or a long while, just remember that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.